Almighty God, your word which goes forth from your mouth will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So some of the comments that I'll be making today on the subject of anger uh, come from an article, which you can read online. It's by one of our uh, seminary profs in St. Louis, Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs. Uh, he wrote an article, excellent article, on the myth of righteous anger. So you can key that into the search engine and read it. It's well worth your time. Uh, but before we get to, to that and the sermon outline, I want to just draw your attention to the gospel reading. And from the end of it, just kind of work our way up toward the top. This is on page 10 of your worship bulletin, uh, verses 33 through 37. Uh, Jesus there uh, talks about the importance of speaking the truth, speaking truth to one another. Uh, research has shown that if you are engaged in another person in conversation for, let's say, at least 10 minutes, the chances are good, it's not guaranteed, but the chances are good that you will tell between two and three lies in that 10-minute conversation. It may be a blatant falsehood. It may be an exaggeration. We call those lies of commission. Or it may be hiding the truth from the other person. We call that a lie of omission. Both are lies, and the devil is the father of lies. That's why Jesus says at the end of the lesson, anything more than yes or no comes from evil. It comes from the evil one. So be on your guard about that. We speak lies more than we realize. And then verses 31 to 32, uh, Jesus condemns both divorce and remarriage after divorce, and well, he should. Divorce is always contrary to the good and gracious will of God. Now, there may be reasonable ground for divorce. It may even in some cases be necessary. But if so, the best one can say about it is that it's the lesser of two evils. It's the best we can say of it. Now, having said that, we must say that divorce and remarriage after divorce are not unforgivable sins. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And to those who have suffered divorce and been remarried, I can think of no better advice than that which our Lord himself gives to the woman caught in adultery. He said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Meaning, don't do this again. <laughs> okay. Just don't do it again. Concerning verses 27 to 30, uh, Jesus speaks of lust. And he speaks of it in a way that's different from his contemporaries. Uh, ancient writers held the woman responsible 
for inciting lust in the man. And so they would make the women cover up. They would keep them confined indoors. Uh, and m many places in the world still do this. Now, I'm all for modesty and dress for both men and women. I think that's important. But Jesus does not hold the woman responsible for the man's lust. He speaks in this passage of lust as a soul-destroying sin. Uh, it, it's so bad that it's better to lose part of your body than to suffer the eternal consequences of that lust. That's how serious it is. And he places responsibility for lusting on the man, not on the woman. So then we come to the first paragraph, verses 21 uh, through 26, and that's where we're going to really focus our attention. And so we begin in verse 21. Jesus speaks these words. Now remember, this is the Sermon on the Mount, right? And it, it, it gained that designation by St. Augustine. He was the first one to refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount, and the name is stuck, okay? And it's a good descriptor, by the way. And so, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's speaking to his disciples, right? There are other people maybe kind of listening in from a distance, but this is addressed to his followers, the Twelve and a few others who have bound themselves to him. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said. Now, note, Jesus is not quoting the Bible. He's not quoting the Old Testament. If he were quoting the Bible, he would say this, it is written thus and so, or Moses has said thus and so. He's not speaking that way here. He's, he's talking about a popular understanding of the commandments, popular interpretation of the commandments. And he's disagreeing with that popular interpretation. And it goes like this. Here's, here's the popular interpretation. As long as you don't kill someone, you've kept the fifth commandment. You shall not kill. And as long as you don't actually commit physical adultery with someone, you've kept the sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Now, Jesus says no, no, no to all that. Jesus teaches that outward observance of the commandment actually begins in the heart of the individual. Uh, Jesus would, would envision here, this kind of language he uses, you can envision, let's say, murder as a poisonous plant or a weed, and anger is at the root of that plant. It's down at the root, you see, that's where it begins. In the same way, you could picture the act of adultery as a poisonous, noxious weed, and lust is at the root of that plant. You see, that's where it begins. And so Jesus goes down to the root of the matter when he applies the law to the heart. But we have a defense mechanism against that when it comes to our anger. We that our anger is different. See, our anger, we like to say, is a righteous anger. You see, a righteous anger is when you're angry with whatever God is angry with. And so if someone offends you, you understand that's wrong. God would be against that, so I have a right to be angry. God can be angry. 
And he doesn't sin when he's angry. He's angry with injustice all the time. Well, this is an injustice committed against me. And he's angry with it without sinning. You know what? I can be angry with it too. I can hold on to my anger without sin, and it's justified because what they said or what they did should not have been said. It should not have been done. And you're right about that. It shouldn't have been done. It is wrong, whatever it was. But notice Jesus' words. Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone, everyone means everyone, not just those who have a good reason for their anger, not just those who are bubbling up with a righteous anger, but everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And then he goes on to talk about insults. He talks about um, insults and name-calling. And, and don't, don't view that as an escalation of sin. I don't think it's that at all. He's just naming different kinds of anger. Insults and name-calling are just different manifestations of anger. Uh, he's talking about one subject, and that's anger. It just takes different forms. And, and all forms of anger, from insult to name-calling, incur the wrath of God. So, Roman number one, in your sermon outline, on page 11, the Bible never speaks of human anger as righteous. It never does. It doesn't speak of man's righteous anger. In fact, James, in the first chapter of his letter, writes these words, man's anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. It doesn't. Now, letter A, human emotions including anger, are not inherently sinful. St. Paul writes, and this is from Ephesians 4, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Okay. So it recognizes that anger is going to occur. But this is hardly a ringing endorsement of anger. It's a caution against it. Letter B, we, we read on here. There is justification for anger, but there is no justification to remain angry. To remain angry. There is no justification for it. So Paul, Paul goes on. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And... Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now here's the point. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ forgave you. You see, you can't stop anger from arising in your heart. But you must dispose of it quickly. You must get rid of it right away. Letter C in your outline. Our anger is never praised. It is not a fruit of the Spirit. 
It is one of the works of the flesh that Paul describes. And even if it arises without our help because we've been wronged in some way, our sinful nature quickly takes it over and will make use of it. That's the problem. Yet there is righteous anger in God. He can handle it without sin. We can't seem to do that. Our sinful nature will take it over and use it for its own purposes. Only God can handle it. So there is a place for anger, but it's not with us. It's with God alone. Letter D. The connection between anger and sin is so close that Christ and his apostles virtually equate the two. Scripture equates the two. And with the exception of Christ's occasional outburst of anger, kind of this righteous anger of his, every example of human anger in Scripture I can find becomes an occasion for sin. Our sin nature will take it over and use it. You know, when Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die, to accomplish his mission of redeeming humanity, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem and he must needs go through Samaria. And the people in a certain Samaritan village would not welcome him. And so what did James and John recommend? Lord, call down fire from heaven to consume them. Jesus doesn't rebuke the Samaritans. He rebukes James and John. And then when the temple police come to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? You know, Peter comes to the rescue, he draws his sword, and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus heals the servant and rebukes Peter, you see. Our righteous anger, if you call it righteous, you can if you want, but we can't handle it. That's the problem. Roman numeral two, anger is the prerogative of God alone. It's the prerogative or the domain, it's the privilege of God alone. Letter A, his anger is righteous. I, I cite Mark chapter three, where Jesus is in a synagogue on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are watching him closely and they put a man with a withered hand in front of him to see what he will do. And we read there that Jesus, knowing their intent, he was angry because of their hardness of heart. They see the miracles. They know deep down he's sent by God, but they will not give up their power for his sake. Their hearts are hard and he's angry. It's justified. But he's the sinless one. He can handle it. His anger is righteous, and yet he is slow to manifest it. He's slow to manifest his anger. I cite Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's our God. So let her be, the one who remains angry assumes the place of God. When we remain angry, we assume the place that God himself has abandoned. 
Roman numeral three. In Christ, God has laid aside his anger. He's laid aside his anger. Now, you know as well as I, if anyone has a right to be angry, it's God. But in Christ, he refuses to make use of this right. He lays it aside. He will not exercise it toward you, toward me, toward anyone driving up and down the street out there. He refuses to do so. Letter A, that's why our anger is so repugnant. We're doing to others what God refuses to do to us. You know, when Christ spoke, verse 22, he knew what was ahead of him. He knew he was going to the cross. And he knew that his cross would spell the end of God's anger toward us. And so looking ahead to that, that's why he speaks this way in verse 22, getting rid of anger. Don't manifest it or lay it aside if it, if it wells up within you. If God has abandoned his anger toward you and toward me, should we not abandon ours toward one another? That expects a positive answer. The answer is yes, or we should. We should. And letter B, this is God's solution to our anger. Verse 32 of Ephesians 4, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Yeah, that's the motivation. That's the motivation. The only way to forgive another is to see yourself as the offender who has been forgiven. That's the key. When I harbor anger in my heart, and at times I do, it's for one reason. Not, not only have I been offended in some way, or maybe I've taken offense at something that wasn't intended as an offense, but I've forgotten my forgiveness. I've forgotten my offenses and God's generosity and mercy toward me. That's why. Letter C, reconciliation within the church. Within the church reflects God's reconciliation with the world. To reconcile with one another is to live the gospel. That's living the gospel. And when Jesus preaches about anger, as I said at the beginning, He's not preaching to the world. He's preaching to the church. He's preaching to people like us. Why? Because Jesus did not call perfect people to follow him. He called you and he called me. And sin happens, doesn't it? Offense is given, isn't it? Offense is taken. And anger results. The lesson today is that this anger that wells up within us is above our pay grade. It's beyond our ability to handle. And so we must get rid of it. We must lay it aside. And the only way we can is to remember that even though God has every right to be angry with you and me, he's laid it aside at the cross. He's laid it aside at the font when you were baptized. 
He lays it aside at the Holy Supper. When the minister speaks the absolution, once again, he's laying the anger aside. That's the good news. That's the difference he makes in us toward each other. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.